Welcome back to the Femsplainers. Hi, Christina. Hi, how are you? We survived the summer. I know. Um, it's still not over, though. A few more weeks. No, we still can have Rosé in the studio, but I, I missed you. I missed you. When you were off having fun, I was here laboring away. But Aww, how was tiny ca- violin. Yeah, well... <laughs> How was Canada, eh? Did Ooh, you come Canada, back? Canada, Canada Canadian accent. Yeah, I, I've been in Canada for just, you know, about six weeks, and you pick up the accent pretty quickly when you go up there, and when you're from there, of course, that's uh, would you be my a, homeland. Your home. Would you be offended by a couple of Canadian jokes? Only if I have heard them already. How do you get a group of rowdy Canadians out of a pool? Let me guess. Can you get out of the pool, please? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, it's been, I have to say, given the political climate in Washington, we go to a place called Prince Edward County. It's east of Toronto, about two hours. It's on Lake Ontario. It's heaven. You've been there. It's farmland and vineyards and vegetable stands. It looks like Provence in France or something. I mean, it's lovely. And lovely people. And the biggest news I heard, like I deliberately only listened to the county radio station up there when I'm in the car, because you get news like, literally, this was a news item. This woman with this incredible, not Canadian accent, but British voice, as if she'd been trained in the theater in the (laughs) 1950s. And she talked about, she has a regular nature segment. And this one was about how to get turtles off the road. (laughs) There's some endangered turtles, and there are indeed a lot of snapping turtles. And she very elegantly said, It helps if you keep a spade in your car. And when you approach the turtle, be sure to pick it up carefully and place it on the side of the road in the direction it was going. Otherwise, it risks turning and going back and getting run over. (laughs) So, boy, better to wake up to that than news of the latest. I would save a turtle, wouldn't you? I'd be afraid to pick it up. I mean, I'd probably use a spade spade in in the trunk of your car. And if it's a big snapper, you pick it oh. up by its rear legs and move it off How the road like a wheelbarrow. Because, oh, it's got a little dragon's tail, a little notch tail that you also want to avoid. Anyway, but that's what I've been doing this summer. <laughs> what, what have you been up to, Christina? You've been in your usual Twitter wars. I spent too much time on Twitter, and I think it's unhealthy. But well, you were even a victim of Sarah Zhang, the New York Times hire. <laughs> well, not a victim. Well, no, you're a not mention. ever a victim. <laughs> No, that's an incredible story. She's hired by the New York Times editorial board. At first, it seemed as though she'd had a few tweets that were poorly thought through. No, not a few. She has thousands. Right. And they go over years and years. And, and she's just an obsessive, just constantly snark and attack. And so And so first I saw she'd attacked Emily Yofi and a few other people I knew. We had on the podcast. And then I thought, I wonder if she attacked me. And I just Googled into Google. I Twitter searched my name. And there I was, and she wished me out of existence. Yeah, she did that with my husband, David, as yeah. well. She used this weird word like, why do they even exist? Right, like, right. it's not enough to disagree. It's not enough to say you you're have wrong, to you're bad. Be eliminated. Like, <laughs> vaporized. <why do> you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, I thought that was a bit tough. But you also, I think you just did, I found this funny, I was looking at her Twitter feed. A lot of people say, you know Christina Summers? The Factual Feminist, she also does a podcast called The Femsplainers. Right. So maybe some of our listeners who listen to The Femsplainers don't know that you do on YouTube this great Factual Feminist where you take some fact of that moment and take it apart and show how it's, I don't want to say fake news, but fake facts. Fake sometimes. facts. So this most recent one, this was like the most dangerous countries in the world for women. Yes, Thomson Reuters Foundation, you know, a respected you know, foundation connected to respected news agency. They came out with a study claiming that the United States is one of the 10 most dangerous countries on earth for women in terms of sexual violence, number three, sandwiched in between Syria and Congo. I mean, the United States isn't perfect, but it is by no means one of the 10 most violent, dangerous I, countries I could, in the world I for women. I could almost believe that in terms of gun deaths, say, deaths from shooting or whatever, but it's actually from sexual violence. What, what was the support for that? What did they offer? Well, it turned out it was a, what they called a perception poll. So it's a perception. It's just people's perception. People's, not people. They sent, I guess, surveys to 540-odd women or experts that they happened to know. So they surveyed their own experts wow. about their perceptions. 
they didn't list all the countries. They just said sort of off the top of your head, what are the most dangerous countries? Now, as everyone knows, that means, you know, how many people are going to remember every country right away and know what to put? So people put the United States because they probably couldn't remember Sierra Leone or they couldn't, you know. (laughs) Well, it's also, I thought, these kinds of surveys aren't supposed to be about perceptions. Like, exactly. It's supposed to be based on... So then I thought, all right, perceptions, experts, who are the experts? And I wrote to them, yeah. and they sent back a form letter just saying that that's proprietary information and we have to keep their names confidential or they wouldn't be forthcoming. They might not speak honestly. And then I asked in the video, are they saying that here are professionals who they're suggesting would, would not speak honestly under their own name? I mean, none of it makes any sense. Right. So I just did a video sort of taking apart how they did it. What was interesting is it got a lot, I mean, a lot of Americans just read it and didn't believe it, but India was called the number one worst country on the planet for women. Now, again, India has very serious problems, but it's doing a lot better than, you know, most of sub-Saharan Africa right. and, uh, you know, Iraq. Women and, are being sold into... Yeah, it's, and they're trying and it's, you know, plenty of room for improvement, but still it's not the worst. So there was a lot of pushback in India and... My video is getting new views from... Uh, You're going to be a Bollywood star. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping for. Where did Canada fall in this? You know what? I just don't remember. Oh, that's <laughs> the curse of Canada. I, know, I bet you don't remember because it was the best place for women. I don't know. what, what, what Prime Minister to... calls himself a feminist. I think on this study, maybe Rwanda was the best. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And you also told me that you're going to go to Australia. That's, by the way, where all of my family is from before they came to Canada. Australia and New Zealand for a lecture tour. And it's March 27th through the 31st. And it's called This is 42. It's a like a lecture agency in Canada. And I'm debating. In Australia. In Melbourne or Sydney? Oh, I'm going to Melbourne, I'm going to Sydney. and Melbourne. Melbourne, Sydney, and then Auckland. Auckland. I would say Auckland. <laughs> Auckland? <laughs> Auckland, New Zealand. You're a good Sheila. Yeah. Then I want to go hiking or trekking. Okay, well, why can't something. we do a femsplain? Well, why don't you Australia? come with me and meet me in Auckland, and then we'll go hiking or biking or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see. And so uh, it's with Roxanne Gay, so I'll be oh. debating her. But she's blocked me on Twitter. That's not a very auspicious beginning. <laughs> Maybe she doesn't want you to exist. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you show me, like, this poster. I think you send it out over Twitter. We should put it up on Facebook. Because they used a, they used a photograph of me from 20 years ago. It should be your Tinder profile photo. Okay. <laughs> I can get dates that photo. <laughs> but then they made your opponent blue. Well, I'm going to be like blue sometimes. They're going to apparently... It's they, the weirdest poster. <laughs> she looks like some, you know... I know, and they, they, they sent it to us and asked for approval, and I just said, oh, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not going to make a fuss. So I think I'm going to be blue sometimes, too. Am I blue? <laughs> okay. All right, so what we were going to do, we had to break for the summer rather abruptly because we were going to do one sort of roundup of our last season before we went away. And then your mother got very sick. Yes. And you had to race to Portland where she lives. And so we were all worried. And But she's okay now, right? She's much better. I am going back for a week in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So we're glad your mom's okay. But so we didn't, we wanted to just kind of look back and review some of the shows. And we've gotten a lot of listener response and notes, which we always love. Some through Twitter, some through our website, some through Facebook. The one person we didn't really get to do a post-mortem on was Sally Quinn. She was the last episode before we broke her Eat, Pray, Hex um, <laughs> episode where she talked about, I mean, aside from her career as a amazing sort of journalist and party thrower in D.C. and all the things she's seen in the social world here, she spent the first half of the interview talking about her recent book, Finding Magic, in which she pretty much comes out as a huge believer in astrology and tarot cards and placing hexes on people, which she wouldn't reveal to us how to do, Ouija boards. One thing I did find interesting, I, do you remember that she said in her family, she comes from this sort of gothic southern family right. and grew up in this very large house with white pillars and things. And the legend was that when a relative died, you would hear that relative dragging chains through the house, haunting the house the night of their death. And I asked her, why are ghosts in chains? Like, why would your uncle be dragging chains? Was he a prisoner? Like, where does that come from? And I actually then looked it up. And do you realize that ghosts dragging chains 
was an invention of Charles Dickens. And there was no record, or so far as one could tell, <laughs> of ghosts in chains pre-Dickens. So it's almost like a Victorian imagination yes, of it, her somehow, relatives. That's very funny. Because like, like, when you think about it, I mean, okay, I was going to say it makes no logical sense. It made sense maybe to me ghosts, in a strange way. Maybe ghosts make keep no them. logical <laughs> yes. But we also got a lot of pushback. She had said that, I think she'd interviewed Richard Dawkins a number of times, and she had said that he was superstitious. And Twitter went bananas about that. They were so insulted that she would have... Well, she, I mean, she wasn't suggesting that he believed in the occult, but I would call myself somewhat superstitious. Not so much that I truly believe in them, but I believe in the power of suggestion that I might... I mean, I might not walk uh, under a ladder or, you know, what if I see a black cat? I don't know. I'm a little... <laughs> but, but Dawkins, I think she did, she did have an anecdote about him. Not, as you say, and, and the same with Hitchens, that I don't believe it, but why take a chance, yeah. you know? And it, it, was, it was funny, but anyway, we got a lot of pushback on that. And, for- you know, and I actually thought about why I don't find magic in the occult all that interesting. Because I just, and when I was younger, I did for a while until I discovered science and physics and philosophy, which are so much more interesting. And they're, they're kind of magical. Because there's so much that's almost occult-like, but, but it's serious, serious science. And right now, there's a podcast by Joe Rogan, mm-hmm. and he occasionally interviews scientists. And he's had this cosmologist, Sean Carroll, on, who specializes in dark energy and general relativity. And Sean Carroll has a podcast called, I think it's Mindscape. And all of that is so much, it's fun. Well, you mean when you start contemplating what is at the end of the universe? And, yes. And, and, and why does it exist? And why does why it is exist? there something rather than nothing? Because people would rather think about ghosts with chains <laughs> than this idea. Like the minute you start going, lying there, you know, under the stars at night going, what's out there? Under that's, the stars at night. Yeah, but it's terrifying. Like It's terrifying, but it's fascinating. It's like we're dogs. We can't contemplate, you know. No, we can't think outside our own little But it it is fascinating. I agree. And I think people were a little ticked off. Some of the reaction was she was very dismissive of organized religion and was suggesting that a sensible person would just pick and choose from all the great religions and just make it up their own way, which sort of goes against really many of the whole ideas of organized religions. Aside from community, having these big questions figured out for you about how to behave and how to be a good person, even if it comes accompanied by stories that, you know, you don't really believe, it certainly can be a force for good. And, and I'm going to say Hitchens something. were here, he would say it was also, can also be a real force for bad. And I will also say about traditional religions, and this may be somewhat controversial, I'm taking a view on wedding decorum. I have been to some weddings, I'm not going to say which, and they're not all, but some where people make up their own vows and they pick and choose from a few religions. And sometimes it's just this smorgasbord and ridiculous, actually. And I was very happy that I had a traditional Jewish marriage. The whole Hmm. ritual was worked out a thousand years ago, (laughs) several hundred, and they haven't changed it too much. And if you improvise too much... Well, you lose also the, especially say in death, that the Jewish... Funeral, sung in Hebrew, is one of the most haunting prayers, you know, the mourner's Kaddish. And when you hear those words again and again, they take on an incredible power within you. And when it comes time to mourn someone you love, it has a real resonance. It it connects you to all of the people in your family who has died. And if you just like every funeral, just make it up. He was a great guy, you know, he played the saxophone. Like you kind of lose the profundity, the the passage of what is what is happening. Anyway, but that was that was interesting. And I just want to do a shout out to my sister-in-law, Senator Linda Frum. She's a senator in Canada who wrote the sweetest thing. She's driving to her cottage and she tweeted, just spent a very enjoyable long weekend drive up north listening to this charming and engaging Femsplainers podcast with Sally Quinn. Try it. Your drive will be time well spent. And then she went on to say, in another tweet, the lack of political partisanship past decades of how both political parties would socialize with each other. And that's something Linda says she misses in Canada, too, that we've all become so estranged from one another. But thank you, Senator. Thank you. And such, such a cogent 
comment. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. Many, many comments. Sexual predators episode with Emily Yaffe. Oh, you're going to a non-splainer? Maybe, which also tied in with our porn episode with adult entertainer Chanel Preston. We got this truly disturbing email from someone calling himself a non-splainer. And I'll just, I'll just read a couple of the highlights because it's very long. But we talked about with Emily, how would you characterize this, that there are real sexual perversions and disorders and they, as we've watched publicly, they reveal themselves in, you know, men flashing or groping. And yeah. because we will only look at it as an issue of power, that these men are trying to show power over women and not in the grip of some condition that we'll never really be able to talk about it. So that, that was sort of the, the basis of the... And we mentioned, and what was wonderful about her article is that... Huffington Post Highline. Huffington yeah. Post Highline. And once we finish talking about these crimes and considering how heinous they are and hating the criminal, we still have to figure out how to stop it Mm -hmm. before it happens. And that means treating people with these paraphilic disorders of pedophilia or exhibitionism. and Right. But then she also pointed out, and this is where a non-splainer came in and reached out to us, sometimes people suffer from things so terrible, they're afraid to even get help help because they're afraid of being arrested. So his, I'll just, again, read a couple of the highlights. He said, Dear Femsplainers, on the outside, I am a normal husband and father in his mid-30s, typical middle-class household, recently married, having stepchildren and children of our own. But on the inside is a living nightmare that's plagued me since I was around 12 years old. I have inclinations toward adolescent pedophilia, incest, polyamory, and cuckoldry. But I do not act on these inclinations, and no one knows I have them. And then he said, when he listened to our podcast, it suddenly all made sense to him. He had been sort of wrestling on his own for over a decade and, and, and terrified of his inclinations. And then in passing, he made this comment about Chanel Preston about porn. And Chanel said, quoting the letter, the one point which stood out for me in the conversation with Chanel was her defense and justification of the porn industry against the notion that it contributes to sexual deviance and misconduct. Up until about 10 years ago, I would have agreed with Chanel's defense of pornography. However, my experience in hindsight, I must acknowledge the elephant in the room she did not address, the burning desire to play out fantasies in real life in pursuit of a higher level of excitement. So for, I guess, this minority, this gives them, spurs them on to action, even though, as we talked about, pornography often contributes to a decline in that kind of action. But anyway, he said at the end, he has found himself unwillingly developing a sexual attraction to his adolescent stepdaughter. He doesn't want this to happen. He didn't know how to deal with it. He hasn't acted on it. And he said, obviously, I can't talk to my wife about this. I can't talk to anyone. Even if I seek clinical help, I would likely be reported to legal authorities for even having such feeling. How does an onsplainer get help where he's just surrounded by these temptations? He's showing incredible strength by not acting on them. What does he do? Well, Emily responds. We asked her about this, and she said, first thing she said was, oi. (laughs) But she said, number one, he has to continue to be a moral person and never act on his fantasies with his stepdaughter. And it's true that confessing these thoughts to a therapist could be dangerous, but still he can talk to a therapist about what he feels are compulsive thoughts and his compulsive consumption of pornography. There are cognitive behavioral techniques that can help. And everyone says that there's a good possibility that through a combination of cognitive therapy and drugs, people are able to get control. So you seek help maybe as a porn addiction or something without yes. ever re- re- she, revealing she's, that. She says that, you know, you don't have to say that you're having these. You can just sort of talk in general about pornography. Because if you do, this is the problem. Right. Only in this country. I don't think other countries. I mean, I know in Germany they are trying to help develop treatments for people, and they have uh, outreach, public service announcements. And right, and there should be a difference between someone who fantasizes about it rather than someone who's actually acted on it. And is the fact that you can have this illness, as it were, and not get help because you might be arrested for not having acted on it is, is terrifying. All right, we also had just on the porn front, we had people getting very annoyed with us that 
we would suggest that porn is not as damaging as we think it is. And Arroyo, he came to us via email. He said, I find the best analog effects of free, ubiquitous porn is abundance of cheap fast food and cheap high-carb, high-fat food in developed economies, the obesity epidemic. Another comparison is the effects from overprescription of painkiller medications, the opioid epidemic. It seems to me that too much of almost anything is bad. Why should porn be an exception? That's a good point. We've never had in such high, saturated ways. I can sympathize with that point of view, but then the question is, what do you do about it? We might want to educate people to a higher level of eroticism, whatever that would be. But I don't know. As we sort of pointed out, it's not clear that the proliferation of porn is connected to these terrible social outcomes. And we just haven't seen. We've actually, the best data we have shows that crime is down, particularly sexual violence, child molestation, arrests are way down over the last decade or so. You would expect that as porn became more explicit in showing all of these degenerate acts, right. that we'd see an increase in society. We haven't. There's a very good argument to be made that it's fantasy. Just because you read a story about cannibalism or you watch a movie that glorifies crime, you don't necessarily become a criminal. It's a right, different with this thing. This small minority, I guess, like a non-splainer is maybe someone who like watches a horror movie and decides he wants to be a serial killer too. I mean, there are people who are going right. to be affected by this in different ways. To counter that, we heard from a man named Gil Greengross via email. And he said, I just heard your podcast on pornography. And though not a researcher in this field, he's an evolutionary psychologist studying humor. I want that job. I've been <laughs> following the research in this area for years. And he links to some studies that suggest that porn may not harm as much as it's believed to. But he said, I don't think there is much research on effects of porn on children. But it seems quite clear that if this is the only exposure they have to sex, it obviously distorts their views. and seems to affect boys more as explicit material caters more towards male psychology, which is more about visual stimuli. Anyway, he, he also makes the eating too much sugary food as an example of how too much of this can be a bad thing, but that just seems to be common sense. That's common sense, and keeping it away from children is more than common sense. It's, it's essential, but I doubt that we're doing a good job at that. Well, Christina, somebody on the last letter on porn was somebody took very seriously, remember you complained that the furniture and the furnishings were always so tacky, like were always taking places. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, why can't there be an architectural digest? A architectural, yes. Or why does it all have to look so bad? And a listener helpfully said to tell you that there's lots of porn shot on nicely dressed and decorated sets. He claims a friend told him. He lists one called Vixen. Okay, what is that now? How do you spell that? <laughs> <laughs> one called X-Art and one called Passion HD. So just in the name of research, and you know I am formerly a reporter, I did go look at one of them. I looked at Vixen. And the surroundings are pretty chic. It looks like it's taking place in some sort of like boutique hotel, you know. A boutique cool hotel place. and a cool place. Not a, like a sleazy Las Vegas. No, by Miami full size and things. Although I have to admit, you don't see a lot of the scenery. It's blocked by very large objects. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can't look at it anymore. Please join the Femsplainers. Yes, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the Femsplainer Podcast. And find the Femsplainers on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. And learn all about us at Femsplainers.com. Thank you. Yeah, Femsplainers. So general, general questions that don't necessarily come out of podcasts. You'll like this one, Christina. It's directed to you. I came across Ms. Summers chatting with a feminist YouTube video and found it quite refreshing. At the end of the video, Mrs. Summers commented about how radical feminists will often stop discussions, such as banging drums, yelling during presentations. I'm wondering if you have ever done any talks or videos about how to combat this. I think the videos speak for themselves where you're you talk to them like toddlers, right? <laughs> you know, I was once at Wellesley College, many years, this is 10 years ago, giving a speech, you know, defending feminism, but taking exception to some extreme forms. And this made the extreme feminists in the audience angry, and they started hissing. 
And I told them not to hiss because it was insensitive. It marginalized people with lisps. <laughs> or snakes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it was otherizing for snakes anyway. But I told them it marginalized people with lisps. They stopped hissing. Wow. So you just have to sort of out. You have to out PC them. Yeah. You were on one that went viral. Uh, the girl, remember? Who was Triggly Puff. I feel sorry for her, but she, it Don't was as me. if she had been sent from central casting of your worst case nightmare student protester. And she had her hands above her head and she was just screaming, F you, F you, every time I opened my mouth. Wasn't she saying something too like, I don't want to hear you, like, 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 like a toddler, like truly a toddler. Stop speaking. I don't want to hear you. I and I'd say, calm down, dear. She said, don't speak to us like we're toddlers. <laughs> and I said, if you stop acting like a toddler, I'll stop speaking this way. <laughs> I know it's like when you have to discipline Izzy, you know, we get the scary Mrs. Summers. Izzy needs to be, <laughs> I'm having trouble with Izzy's behavior. We'll work on that, but at least she doesn't bang drums. I thought she was better last night. Then, yes, she came to our house last night. She's very good because you know why? She likes me. Yeah, true. <laughs> and your dogs were away. I think that they <laughs> encourage her. Okay, here's from Mark that says, needs to be fansplained. He came also via email. He says, so a woman enters into a 10-year relationship with a married man. It is impossible for her not to know that he is married as he is quite famous. At some point, the relationship ends and the famous man runs for president of the United States. Why is it okay for her to ask for money from him to keep the relationship quiet? And why isn't she being equally shamed for being part of the relationship? Call me a caveman, as I thought that relationships should be emotionally beneficial. Based on the length of the relationship, it is not clear to me that she was a victim or harmed in any way, so I would like to understand the motivation behind the money grab. You know, I think that's a very good question, because normally... If two people have a consensual affair, and this, in this case, she claims it was consensual. For example, she had... We're he, talking about which of the many politicians. Exactly. Well, we know we're talking I, about Mr. I Trump. I mean Mr. <laughs> Trump because he did become president, but... And the Playboy Centerfold, for example, yeah. Karen McDougal, and yeah. they met at the Playboy Mansion, I don't know, in 2006, and, and started up an love. affair, and it was love, and it went on. And then she ends up sort of blackmailing him, except this press doesn't tell it that way. And to me, I just want to understand, because, I mean, we've had this in the past. I mean, Alexander Hamilton, he was blackmailed not by his mistress, Maria Reynolds, but by her husband, James, and he's seen as a bad character, a rogue. Not Hamilton, but James for blackmailing. That seemed to be a bad thing. Now, I can understand, it's, when people come out and say you abuse them and they're, they're victims, mm -hmm. that's an honorable thing, and of course we treat them respectfully. But when someone wants to sell their story, I don't know. It seems... Well, you know, I, I agree. It's just, if that's the class of woman you're having these affairs with, right. that's really... I, I, I agree with the writer, too, that if you are affronted by his behavior and you feel his infidelity is an important factor of his character in a presidential campaign, and you come forward, come forward, but the minute you start asking for money... It doesn't look like you're doing the honorable and right thing. You should just do it for the honorable and right thing's sake. If that well, is indeed the honorable and right like thing. I would say that the mistresses of Mr. Clinton and Jennifer Flowers, well, was she out for money? Maybe. I mean, she wrote a book. But she just told the story. Right. All of them, I think. I, you have to check, but you have to Google it. But, <laughs> but I don't think any of them, like Juanita Broderick, none of them made or asked for money on that. No. So Trump has more... I don't know, year. opportunistic, flashier, <laughs> <laughs> entrepreneurial, <laughs> or just he, he's, he's met his match in these women. It would be interesting if he yeah. were brought down by one of them. I don't know. But anyway, but I do find it funny. I mean, David Lenerbin was having affairs with women on his set, apparently, and someone blackmailed him. I forget who it was, someone maybe at the network. And as soon as he got the threatening notes that he was going to be exposed, he went directly Public, to, right. to the FBI right. and then confessed to it think that person went to jail. Okay, we have last sort of general question from a mansplaining, a mansplainer. Another anonymous one. This oh. is about being a male teacher, and he's actually from Canada. I think that you're favoring Canadians when you choose the questions. <laughs> it certainly helps. I, I will say that. He says, as a male Canadian teacher educated in America 20 years ago, he was reacting to how you're not allowed to hug anybody. 
anymore. I think it was from our mansplainers with Nat and Joe, our millennial mansplainers who talked about proper etiquette in school and the workforce post Me Too. Like, are you allowed to hug anyone? This is interesting. This is his experience. He says, we were all taught in college, of course, never touch a student in any way for any reason. If a student for some reason hugs you, let your arms hang at your sides and maintain an upright, neutral, unreceptive posture until the student disengages. Female elementary school teachers often give encouraging pats on shoulders or a comforting squeeze of the forearm despite their training. Male elementary school teachers correctly do not feel their jobs secure enough to do so. So I guess women can get away with it. Secondary school teachers pretty much never make physical contact in any way. If they do, they are female teachers, and it's the pat on the shoulder or the squeeze, and very rarely the hug. I am occasionally offered a high five, and it makes me cringe a bit inside to return the high five, but I usually do. Let me ask you something. Were you, do you recall being hugged by a teacher? I don't think I ever was. But it was a long time ago. Maybe there's more hugging now. But what he's suggesting is there isn't. You, I mean, it's dangerous to hug. Well, he wrote a quite a long letter again, which we won't go through, but I wouldn't want to have been hugged by Miss Foster. <laughs> That was a Miss Foster. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, I can see, yeah, male teachers should not be hugging their students. But you know what? B, my youngest daughter, when she was in nursery school, she had this phenomenal male nursery school teacher. And he was so gentle with the children. And when you have, I mean, I think it's one thing when you're a 15-year-old girl. But when you're a little five-year-old girl and you hurt yourself or you want comfort... I seem to remember this teacher having a lot of interaction that way with the children, but it was never creepy or you would never, didn't go up in alarm. So it is a little insane, but he was, he was trying to make the point to us that male teachers kind of live <laughs> in fear all the time of even a high five gesture going wrong. We have a kind of moral panic around sexuality. And so our schools desperately need more male teachers because it's, good for girls and boys to have that mix, but increasingly teaching is an all-female pursuit because it's difficult, especially the younger grades for men. But didn't you, weren't you just telling me before we started, there's now a tables turned to the Me Too with a feminist professor? Oh, and she did ask for hugs. (laughs) So get this. Yes, there's a professor, Avital Ronell, and she's, you know, just a much praised, renowned female professor of German and Camp Lit at NYU. And she's been found responsible for sexually harassing, actually a rather handsome, hey, uh, young uh, male graduate student named Nimrod Reitman. <laughs> Nimrod. He's Israeli, right? Yeah, he's Israeli. Nimrod, that's such a, that was in cartoons, wasn't it? Like yeah, Donald Duck? Biblical. Yeah. It's a conquering hero or a hunter anyway a hunter well anyway. he was the hunted in this but one. in this case he was hunted <laughs> there was an then 11 month title IX investigation found that Rennell, you know this philosophy star she wrote suggestive emails here are some of her pet names for him most adored one sweet cuddly baby cock or spaniel with a Ooh, ironic hyphen that should go on vixen cocker spaniel and my astounding and beautiful nimrod so <laughs> that doesn't scan that's not a shakespearean sonnet in the making <laughs> <laughs> what is it my darling <laughs> well anyway the university has made its judgment confidential i'm reporting this from the new york times but what happened in the meantime is a group of illuminaries wait, and- how would she do this these were just correspondence? No, no, no. There was also an occasion in a Paris apartment, I think, when he was applying to the department. She had him stay in her bed. Okay, come on. How do you have a student stay in your bed? Isn't he gay? He's gay. I think he's gay. He's gay, and I think she is, but he considered it harassing, and I agree with him. But how how do you get a man like that into your bed haplessly? Like, it is, I mean, it's just such a crazy story. You know, that's the thing, the human side of it, what was actually going on, was he really frightened or, you know, maybe he was a little bit put off because you look at him, he's a lot younger than she is. (laughs) You don't think he... And she's got, she wears like crazy bandanas. Bandanas, but anyway, a little strange. (laughs) Anyway, the most serious charge, I guess, so they had this scene where she invited him to share the bed, then she put her hands on her breasts, 
and her other parts of her body, and she was kissing me and my hands and my torso, blah, blah, blah. And but he consented uh, to go in the bed. <laughs> he confronted her the next morning, and she said, look what happened, with, you know, I, and he said it wasn't okay, and it goes on. So what happened was a group of professors, famous feminists and led by Judith Butler, came to her defense and almost put NYU on notice that this is a very significant international scholar whom you've accused, and you better be careful. And they didn't seem to care at all about harassment and abusive power, and it was just pretty shocking. You know what, actually, this is a really good example of. I mean, as you're reading this story, you think, okay, he's an improbable witness, too. Like, what really went down there? I think we all agree it's whatever happened is completely improper, and, and she behaved badly. But you know how women will come up sometimes with stories, and the same people who are defending her ask for them to be utterly believed, no matter how improbable or consensual it seemed. So it's not just that they're trying to protect now a female academic accused of this, but they're also saying even if the man somehow consensually found himself in her bed, he did not consent to touching her, which that part seems true if he's gay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's just, let's suppose for the sake of argument that these particular scholars were not the ones, it's a different groups. They might not have been the ones that were pushing this idea that you should always believe women or always believe the accuser, but they didn't protest when this came to their campus, that you must always believe the victim, must always believe the victim. Now, I don't know what to believe here, although we do have the suggestive emails that shows and I, again, I don't know the human situation and what was going on between these two people. And, you know, she now says that we were both Israelis, we're both gay. It was just an affectionate, crazy relation, you know. So maybe what's now you can't have those and maybe it used to be fun. I don't know. We don't know. And so what people want to do is to bring this into a Title IX investigation. But they've done the same thing to a lot of men where there were also might have been mitigating human explanations. Oh, Nimrod. We're kind of out there. You know Nimrod. what? I'm kind of in love with Nimrod. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moving on, Nimrod. We'll put him on the website. <laughs> we'll put him on. <laughs> yes, would you harass this man? Um, the last ones we get, we do enjoy all your feedback. We, we love your criticism, but we, we kind of like your praise too. And we had two especially nice emails. They're from both men. <laughs> One from Edward Ramsey in Scotland. And another from Jason in London. Edward in Scotland said that he he really loves listening to it, and he says some very nice things. And then he says, There are so many topics in my own life I wish I could ask advice on, but that just seems foolish. Just please accept simple and blissful thanks from a wee Scottish lad that loves your work. Keep on femsplaining for all us hopeless guys out there. Oh, Edward, you wee Scotsman. Oh, Edward, <laughs> we, we heart. We, we <laughs> <is> reach- <laughs> and Jason, he's been listening to the podcast from the beginning, and he says, it's one of the highlights of my week, and you make my walk to work on a Tuesday morning in London delightful. The honesty, wit, and conversation is so refreshing. Well, have a pint on us, Jason. Thank you. Hello, if you're on your morning walk, hello. I have a great tweet that I got from James. I don't know if he's in, I think he's somewhere like that, but he said, I finally got my mom to watch your interview on the Rubin Report. She was stunned that she completely agreed with you, and she decided that I might not be a Nazi for listening to people like you. You're making a difference. Well, why are you giving the Rubin Report, the ad, Christina. Like, <laughs> well, it could, it could have been, it could have been a femsplainer. It could have been a femsplainer. No, but I like the. This is what I love because my mother gets worried. My ninety-four-year-old mother in Portland, bless her heart, she's very left-wing, more left-wing than that. I think she's a communist, but in a good way. But my mom worries about me being conservative, and then I show her the femsplainer. She listened to the femsplainers, and she agrees with us on everything. Well, this is actually from Jen, a fellow femsplainer mm-hmm. or sister femsplainer. Sister. She said, I started listening to your podcast after doing a search for Ion Hersili. That was, Ion is so amazing. That was one of my favorite yeah. episodes. And she said, I've always considered myself a feminist, but never fully identified with the modern definition of feminism, although I tried for whatever reason. I escaped from a patriarchal cult, Jehovah's Witnesses, 
and rebelled by going to college, grad school, and teaching junior college history. And partying quite a bit, let's be honest. Hey, Jen, you are a femsplainer. Um, <laughs> she said she often struggles to support the issues many pop feminists promote, and more importantly, the demonization of other women who are actually fighting for real women's rights like Ian. Thank you for reopening that dialogue for me. Well, thank you, Jen, who's in Sacramento. I can't do a Sacramento accent, I don't think. Well, maybe it's like the Valley, sort of Californian. You mean I should have said I started listening to your podcast? Yeah, but I don't know. Sacramento may be more... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think of that as Sacramento. I don't have a clear Sacramento. What also happened this summer, Christina, is we have a new sponsor. And what is really exciting about this sponsor is she actually does things that we really, really like. Like, so we don't have to promote, I don't know, uncomfortable mattresses. Yes, and... Pipes and smoking <laughs> materials. <laughs> Does anybody promote pipes? <laughs> anyway, all those things you see on late night TV and other radio shows. We're bringing on Rachel Tenbrink, who is CMO and founder of Scentbird. And that is a subscription service for designer and luxury fragrance for both sexes. Welcome to the Femsplainers, Rachel. Hi, very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And you founded this company, and we always love having female founders of companies on. Tell us why you decided to start this service. Sure. So I've always been fascinated by beauty. I've been in the beauty industry for quite a while. I met up with my three other co-founders who are much more on the technology space, whereas I came from the beauty space. And we started to talk about the fragrance category. And I'm personally a huge fragrance junkie. But when you go to a store, the experience is so intimidating. And so we started to talk as founders about, like, how do we make this experience of finding the right scent a lot less scary for customers? What, you mean like the way they come at you and try and assault you with those? Exactly. (laughs) Or they're disapproving. And you want to try it several of them, and then they get very impatient, and you feel bad if you don't buy it right then and there. Right. Exactly. Well, and also, like, sometimes they give you that, you know, you you might go to an expensive, like, a Barney's here in New York or something, and they give you this look kind of up and down, like, oh, no, no, girl, you're not going to be able to afford this. And it's like, right. how did you know? One of the big questions I had originally for you, Rachel, was my time, Christina's time, our mother's time, you picked your scent, usually when you were around, what, 18 or 19, and then you wore it for life. Chanel number no. five. Or Joy. For, Do you remember life. Jean Patou Joy? That was the most expensive <laughs> yes. perfume in the world. And I wear one scent, and if I change it, my children look alarmed if I ever wear something differently because they so associate this perfume with me. But you're saying that that's not true anymore, certainly for millennials. No. So we did a survey and we asked 400 millennials about their fragrance usage, and we said, how many of like your mothers and your grandmothers have that one signature scent, that one scent that they've produced all their life? And the research was around 56% of mothers and grandmothers used one scent. But then when we asked them, do you stick to one scent? The answer was only 3% of them did. And what was really fascinating was the reasons they were switching and how they thought about fragrance. We talk to customers all the time and they'll say, but I'm looking for my signature scent. But when they talk about signature scent is like my signature scent for right now, like my signature scent for back to school. You know, it's not like signature scent for the rest of your life. It's like, you know, for the fall. It's like mood and season and events. And and tell us about men too. I mean, you have cologne choices for men. Yeah. The men's side of the business has been I would say nothing short of a revelation for us because, frankly, we sort of laugh because when we started Scentbird, we never really thought about men. So we call it Scentbird, which isn't the most masculine of names, but oh well. It should we'll be Scent Beast, I think. Scent <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Hawk or something like yeah. that. And we said, well, you know, we kept on getting requests from our subscribers saying, you know, my, my dad would love this, my brother. And we said, okay, you know, it'll be a giftable item. That'll be good. So we launched it really not having huge expectations. And what's blown us away is that over 30% of our subscriber base are guys. Guys will do anything not to set foot in a department store. Places like Sephora and Ulta don't really cater towards men. 
So the idea of sort of a technological solution to the problem of finding fragrances really resonates with us. You know what I think, too, is that the key to fragrance is find the right one, try different ones, and not to put on too much. My grandmother taught me to spray it and walk into it. And that's one of the benefits that people tell us a lot about with Scentbird is that because it's in a travel spray, it's really easy to use throughout the day. So you don't have to bathe yourself in it in the morning. You can, to your point, two sprays. Two sprays and walk into it. I think if you spray it on yourself, it might be too much. I did notice that you have a great selection for both men and women in terms of very high-end or new emerging brands. Like I saw, my younger daughter was thrilled to see you carry the new Glossier scent. She's a big fan of Glossier makeup. Tell us about some of the other brands that you carry. We really wanted it to be a perfume playground. We wanted a broad assortment. And some of the fragrances that we absolutely love from the high-end sort of well-known designer brands like a Gucci or a Dolce & Gabbana, but also amazing niche discoveries. I mean, we're huge fans of Ness. We're huge fans of Juliet Has a Gun. There's a brand called Montau that has these incredible scents, Artiste. So it's really fun to sort of be able to introduce our community to all these different brands. A lot of times what we see is that the first month they subscribe, they might go for that well-known brand because they've been curious about it and wanted to try it. But maybe the next month they want to try something upscale and niche like EV Floral. So it's really interesting how they have this opening of the world, this idea of all these new scents that they can try. Christina's sitting next to me playing with them and, and like the studio, it's going to... No, I love... Like a- <laughs> I just discovered Caswell Massey, Centuries Sandalwood. And it's subtle and lovely. They're actually the oldest perfumer in the United States. I don't think I would have tried it. Wait, it's not for men, is it? Maybe. Well, it's sandalwood, but they it's... They have men's and women's, and they also have unisex scents. It's just fresh, lovely. It certainly made the studio smell a lot better than it did. Okay. <laughs> but Rachel, so how much does the subscription cost, and how many cents do you get to try each month? Subscriptions start at fourteen ninety five, and you do get a discount if you want to sign up. You can upgrade to two or three perfumes a month if you really have a ton of things you want to try. It's super convenient. You can cancel anytime. Shipping is always free. So it's a really fun way to try things, and I think the key thing is that you're getting to try exactly what you want, not just sort of something that shows up at your door. Well, thank you, Rachel. We're very excited to have you aboard as a sponsor. It's Scentbird. How do they find you? It's Scent, like the smell, S-C-E-N-T, and then bird, like tutu, to scentbird.com. And hopefully they can use your code and get a nice discount. So go to scentbird.com. And if you use the discount code FEMSPLAIN, F-E-M-S-P-L-A-I-N, you'll get 50% off coupon for the first month. Is that right, Rachel? That's it. Just $7.50 for a designer fragrance in You can also go to scentbird.com backslash Femsplain and get the same deal. So thank you, Rachel. We're very excited and look forward to more fragrances. Thank you. I'm a huge fan. I use them on my little dog, Izzy. You sprayed Izzy with perfume? Just a little bit, to, just to test them out. And she said, <laughs> That's actually a really good idea, because certainly my Labradors could, could, could use, use a little freshening. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think we can say it's recommended for pets, but maybe that could be the next company, Scent Dog. Yeah, and makeup for dogs. Izzy could use just, you know, a little touch-up on her button nose. Concealer. Some, some concealer, concealer under yeah. eyes and glitter. Maybe that'll be our next Doggy concert. glitter. We could make a fortune. <laughs> okay. The last thing, can we just say this? We are getting sponsors now, which is awesome, but some of you have just sent us free stuff. And maybe the best free stuff we got, and this is not a paid endorsement unless you count brownies as pain, but we heard from Joni of Lucky Guy Bakery, another woman-owned business, and she reached out and she said she had launched a wholesale and online brownie business And she created them to pair beautifully with red wine or bourbon. So she sent us some of her chocolate, delicious Delicious. brownies. And indeed, they did pair pair well. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want some great brownies, shout out to Joni of Lucky Guy Bakery. 
Are we Thank telling you. people to send us stuff? Yeah, send no, us stuff. No, <laughs> no, no. Just good stuff. <laughs> Tasteful stuff. Something you'd we'll see try in an it. elegant porn set. And if it's an alcoholic <laughs> beverage. <laughs> well, I think that's it. So we're looking forward to the new season. We've got some amazing guests coming up. I think we should have a sort of, if we can have some of it politically oriented, given the midterms, but without being partisan. We try not to be partisan. Political, but not partisan. Right. So so we'll be talking about some of that. We have Julia Yaffe, writes for GQ, done incredible profiles of Melania and Don Jr. And Tamler Summers from Very Bad Wizards. Who's no relation. My <clears throat> uh, um, uh, right, Writing about honor. We have some great guests. We're having someone who's going to talk about motherhood in the age of fear. Free-range parents, I guess we call them who dare to let their children play in front yards and get swooped down upon by social services. Talk about... It's so strange. I know. Well, it's an interesting... It's a real issue these days, so we'll talk about that. But anyway, we love your ideas. Please continue to reach out to us. You can email us at contact at femsplainers.com. You can find us on Twitter at Femsplainers and also on Facebook at Femsplainers and on Instagram at Femsplainers Podcast. I'm trying to Instagram and I don't know how to do it yet. You have to give me a lesson. Oh, I think we have to turn to our millennial in the studio, Isaac. 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 (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, looking forward to it, sister. Cheers. Cheers. Be a Femsplainer. Femsplainer.